Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Connecticut is rich with history, but how much do you know about Hartford history? Coming up, historian Bill Hosley will join us to talk about a new series starting at Capitol Community College. That's later. Also, have you been taking more selfies than usual thanks to a certain Google app? The Google Arts and Culture app has gone viral. It pairs your selfie with portraits, even sculptures around the world that may look like you. Most of them aren't a perfect match. But is this app helping us connect to the arts in a meaningful way? We'll get the perspective of Kim Syatt, director of the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. That's coming up. First, the ice jams in the Connecticut and Housatonic Rivers are amazing to look at, but they have created some problems. After being closed for a few days due to flooding and ice jams in the Housatonic River, Route 7 near Kent, Connecticut just reopened on Thursday. We reached Bruce Adams, first selectman of Kent yesterday afternoon. He tells us town residents have never seen thick ice blocks jamming up the river before. We have a rather surreal scene of uh, huge chunks of ice which have formed on the river and over uh, starting Saturday and up to today have have frozen together. So we have about a mile-long barge, it's been called by some, of ice, all one piece uh, in the river and open water down below it and open water above it. But this this barge is uh, solid. It's been estimated by some that it might be as thick as 10 to 12 feet. No one knows for sure. So is this something that the town of Kent has seen before? We have never, we have not been able to find anybody uh, among the uh, older folk who've been here for a long time that has ever witnessed anything to this extreme. We have had this section of the river commonly floods, but usually in the spring because there's some low-lying areas and then there's some other factors that cause the flooding. Um, and a few years ago, we did have, a during the spring thaw, we did have some gigantic chunks of ice come up onto the road and took out trees and guardrails and closed the road for a couple of days. But we've never seen a a standstill blockage of this magnitude uh, I've never seen it, and I've been here since the early 70s, and we've not found anybody from before that that's seen it either. So tell us the impact right now. What has happened in the town of Kent because of this ice jam? Well, to be honest with you, the impact to the town as a whole has been relatively minor. Uh, it's an inconvenience having Route 7 closed because it's it's the major thoroughfare in town, and it's the way that most people use to go south primarily to New Milford, uh, Brookfield, Danbury area to to shop or work. So there are a couple of other alternative routes, so it's it's just an inconvenience. We've we've evacuated some people from their homes, uh, all of whom have found alternative living. But otherwise, life goes on. Uh, I want to emphasize that we have a pretty busy uh, downtown business area, and it is totally open for business, unaffected uh by by the ice and by by the water underneath the ice uh it's for the most part staying within the banks of the river 
uh, except in particularly low areas. You mentioned some people being evacuated. How many are you talking about, and how has the Kent School been impacted? Well, we've evacuated early on uh, five families on uh, three on Route 7 and two on a private road just north of town that goes right down to the river. Uh, they were evacuated. The water rose very quickly on Saturday, so those people were all evacuated on Saturday, and, and uh, one or two of them have returned to their homes. Um, they're encased in, in ice, but they've got electricity and power and food, and they're, they're okay. Um, the Kent School has been the most uh, felt the most impact of this. They are a large private uh, high school across the river from our town uh, that has approximately 580 students from countries all over the world. And they came to our meeting on Sunday uh, seeking input, and they got it uh, as to whether they should uh, send their students home, which they've they've done on a few occasions before, but not often. And so they've, they've sent all those students uh, either home or to live with uh, families uh, in, in the greater area uh, until further notice. Uh, la- at last night's meeting, I did hear that they were considering bringing their students back uh, this Sunday, but by the end of the meeting, I also heard that they were considering extending that to Wednesday. So I haven't heard a final decision yet, though. Uh, you mentioned a meeting. I know there was one uh, the other night uh, with you and other officials. I mean, what ideas have been proposed to deal uh, with this ice jam, with the weather fluctuating so much? Are you worried about um, possible uh, more flooding that could impact your town? Well, first of all, nothing nothing has been uh, put forth to remove it. Uh, there's There's talk of dynamite and cranes with wrecking balls and that sort of thing, and, and none of those options have been discussed. I know they have a uh, an icebreaker on the Connecticut River. Uh, we couldn't get an icebreaker on this river, even if we wanted to, for a lot of different reasons. So none of those options are being considered. Um, so we're 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 at the mercy of Mother Nature. We our our, our key speaker uh, at last night's meeting was a, uh, a hydrologist from the National Weather Service in Albany. And she presented us with lots of good information, but she readily admitted that that neither she nor anyone else can can predict what's going to happen. We've got some warm weather coming, but she she said we we'd need to have some average temperatures in the low to mid 40s for three or four days for it to have much effect. And we're just going to see those low those high temp higher temperatures during the daytime. The the nighttime hours are going to go back below freezing. So. How much of an effect that warm-up will have remains to be seen, and then we're expecting some uh, some rain, uh, half to an inch, uh, Monday, Tuesday. That could have a positive effect in terms of melting things and getting things moving, or it could have a negative effect uh, in terms of of flooding. Um, right now, the river has actually dropped uh, since this event began officially in, on Saturday the water level has dropped by 50 inches, um, primarily because none of the tributaries that feed into the Housatonic River are running. They're all frozen, so nothing's coming into the river. So there's, it's general belief that there's probably a pretty good-sized gap between the bottom of the ice and the top of the water. So there's, the general feeling is that it will. the only thing that will move this ice is uh, water, water movement, and the water 
it seems is uh, is quite far from the ice. So we may we may be looking at this uh, this this ice pack for a while. Uh, your town's been getting a lot of attention, uh, national attention. I understand the Weather Channel uh, uh, we crew have, we had, <laughs> was yeah, there. <laughs> we had Jim Cantor from the Weather Channel here. He's a rock star in the weather world, and uh, we had people coming over uh, just just to meet Jim. And I didn't see it, but apparently he he broadcasts live from from our ice barge on the Weather Channel. I'm talking to the first luckman of the town of Kent, uh, Bruce Adams, about this uh, large ice jam along the Housatonic uh, impacting uh, parts of the town. We also know of ice jams along the Connecticut River impacting shoreline towns like Haddam. You know, I'm curious, uh, Selectman Adams, about the, the geography of, of the Housatonic River and how it's unique that it has caught that this problem has uh, has been started in the first place. Can yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad to ask because that's something that I've learned in this process. I've I've lived and worked here since '72, and I didn't know this. So what we have is the Housatonic has its has its headwaters up and up up in a small town just north of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and for the most part, the river is straight from Pittsfield down to just north of here. Well, in Kent. Uh, there are a few factors that contributed to this ice dam. Number one is there are two 90-degree turns right here at the town of Kent. Uh, number two, uh, there are some narrowing of, of, the, of the waterway called choke points where the river, river narrows down. Number three, the area that's frozen runs very, very slowly. Uh, if you came by in the summer, for example, you'd have to look hard to see if it's even moving. Number four, um, the river we found out uh, in talking to the, uh, the the rowing coach at Kent School who spends his whole spring on the river is only in, in most most places where the where the ice dam is, is only five feet deep. There are a few areas that are deeper than that, down to 10 or so, but only about five feet deep. So all of those factors uh, uh, do lead to flooding here fairly commonly in the spring and are the factors that cause the ice to jam up here and not the town just north of us is Cornwall. And the, from what I'm told, I haven't been up there, but what I'm told is the, the water is open and, and running just north of us and the water is open and running uh, just south of us, and there are rapids in both of those places. So that's another factor that there's more pitch to the river north and south than we have here in Kent. So I understand, Selectman Adams, that uh, for the most part, the town of Kent has not seen a, a severe impact because of this ice jam uh, causing um, a lot of flooding. But you had declared a, a local civil preparedness emergency. Can you just explain to us what that means and how it's different from, then, say, a state of emergency? I'm glad you used the proper term because most people don't. You're exactly right. It's a civil preparedness emergency, uh, which is is not a, a state of emergency where you'd be seeing the governor on TV or federal aid or anything like that. It is simply uh, a declaration by the, the first selectman or mayor of the town that opens up uh, a lot of potential uh, doors for help, the main one being from the uh, Connecticut uh, Department of Emergency Management and Homeland Security. We're we're part of what's called Region Five in that department, which covers from the Massachusetts border to the north, all the way down to Long Island Sound. Basically, uh, 
west of west of Hartford, so a big area. So all those towns that are that comprise Region Five have have various resources. So it makes all those resources available to us. So right now we have in our in our possession on site from various locations four or five electronic uh, message boards, uh, a large quantity of sandbags, which if we decide to use them, we have to fill them. Um, we don't know whether we'll use them or not. Uh, we have a, a trailer uh, full of assorted emergency supplies, um, and we have uh, flat-bottom boats in case we need to make any water rescues, which we've not had to do since the uh evacuations took place on Saturday so that and there's all kinds of other resources that are available to us if if we should need them so that's the purpose of that civil preparedness emergency so right now it's a wait and see but have you been seeing a lot of people coming uh, to be along the river to get shots any concerns about their safety very concerned about that not a place where people should be parking their cars on the side of the road to take pictures and so we're going to use some of those electronic message signs to put into there are pull-off areas that people use during the summer for picnicking or fishing or just parking to check their cell phones. We're going to put signs in those areas to try and discourage people from stopping. It's it's a very potentially very dangerous situation. We haven't had any incidents so far, but there have been sightings of people, you know, heading for the river thinking it might be interesting to you know, climb partially out on the rocks. I did see on Saturday. I was shocked to see a young man with a kayak over his head headed for the headed for the river down at the uh, at the falls at Bulls Bridge, which is a very popular kayaking place, but not a place anybody should be kayaking. And uh, First Light, who owns the the shoreline property in this area, uh, at at my request after relaying the kayak story to them, they've shut down the whole recreational area, the parking area, and uh, we'll we'll use police force if we have to to keep people out of there. First Lecman Bruce Adams in Kent, Connecticut. Thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks. Nice talking to you. This is where we live. As I mentioned earlier, ice jams aren't just an issue in the Housatonic River. The Connecticut River has seen ice jams for a few miles. Just yesterday, the first selectman in the town of Haddam declared an emergency, citing the ice jams along the Connecticut River as a danger to residents and property in Haddam. Selectman Millardo is asking Governor Malloy to declare a state of emergency for the town so it can utilize state and federal resources. Meanwhile, the U.S. Coast Guard has sent two ships to help break up the ice jam in the Connecticut River. Now, have you been uh, going out to the Connecticut River and getting shots of of these big blocks of ice? Uh, you can tweet at where we live um, some of the videos and photos that you've taken. But I want to uh, bring into the conversation now uh, someone from the U.S. Coast Guard because the U.S. Coast Guard has sent two ships to help break up the ice jam in the Connecticut River. Joining us now by phone, Lieutenant Shannon Andrew, Waterways Management Division Chief with the U.S. Coast Guard sector Long Island Sound. Lieutenant Andrew, are you there? Yes, I am, and good morning. Thank you for having me. So what kind of ships are on the Connecticut River today? Um, so we have two ships. We have our uh, 65-foot harbor tugs, which are all, also our ice-breaking tugs. Um, we've got the Bollard out of New Haven and the Hauser out of Bayonne, New Jersey. Now, how unusual is it uh, for the Coast Guard crew when you're out there breaking the ice? This is something that they've done in winters past. How unusual is this ice jam this year? Um, 
I'd say it is a little bit more unusual than normal. Usually it's a uh, solid flow of ice, um, and, and this ice, because of the weather conditions, it, it melted and then stacked on top of each other. So we don't usually have two 65s on the Connecticut River. We just have the bollard, and they have a pretty easy time transiting up the river, and that's, that's not the case this time. Can you explain for us how these ships are breaking up the ice? I've heard this term, brash ice, and how that can add some uh, difficulty to the job. Mm-hmm. So the ships break the ice. They can break 18 uh, inches with forward propulsion. Uh, they've got 500 horsepower, so they just ram on top of the ice, and then the hull can set on top of the ice and crush it. Um, and what kind of uh, damage uh, is the uh, the Coast Guard seeing? And we are hearing again from, um, just anecdotally, from uh, shoreline property owners are seeing uh, damage uh, along their docks and marinas. We We haven't had... We've had a report of damage. I don't know if they've actually seen any damage because if, if you see the aerial shots, I mean, the river it, it is decently wide, so they can't see the actual physical damage. We've just gotten reports of concern and, and, and flooding. Now, how long will uh, both ships be on the Connecticut River? Um, we're, we're not sure at this time. We're just kind of um, taking it day by day and with, with the weather um, and trying to progress. There's actually two ice flows or two ice jams that they're trying to break through. So depending on how long it takes us to get this get through the first ice flow in Essex, um, depends if we can go up to East Haddam and get to the bridge and, and go there. So I, I couldn't tell you how long both of them are going to be there. And do any idea how a bit long this ice jam is? Again, I've again I've seen different reports about it being more than five miles. I think that the first one is at least two and a half miles. Any any concern uh, with the way the weather has been fluctuating, the recent blizzard, extreme cold in the eastern U.S.? Has this stretched it, your, your resources at all at the U.S. Coast Guard? It has. So we have a, a larger picture called Opera New, and it's uh, just to ensure that um, we have like security and supplies and energy for the Northeast. It goes from Canada to New Jersey. And so we have icebreakers in, in the Hudson River, um, in Boston, in Maine. And so we've been trying to combat this with just the early freezes this year. Um, we've definitely had to put a strain. We've been able to answer all the calls, but it's taken a lot of triage and a lot of work. <laughs> I want to thank Lieutenant Shannon Andrew again, a Waterways Management Division Chief with the U.S. Coast Guard Sector, Long Island Sound. Uh, two ships uh, of the Coast Guards on the Connecticut River near Essex to help break up this miles-long uh, ice jam. Again, uh, bringing a lot of residents uh, to the shore at the Connecticut River to get pictures of this spectacular site. Uh, we want to thank you, though, for telling us about what the Coast Guard is doing out there. Thanks no, thank again, you, Lieutenant. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, is your portrait in a museum? If you downloaded the Google Arts and Culture app, you know what I'm talking about. This app has trended thousands of people taking selfies to see how the app pairs their face with paintings, even sculpture found in museums worldwide. After the break, we'll talk with Kim Sayet, director of the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery, about how this app might spark people to become more interested in the arts. Now, have you taken a selfie using this app? Tweet us your results at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have you taken more selfies lately thanks to that Google Arts and Culture app? The app has a feature that allows anyone with a smartphone to take a selfie. The app then instantly sorts through portraits found in museums worldwide to find your art twin. Have you tried it? Share your art selfie with at Where We Live. The Where We Live team has shared ours as well uh, at Where We Live on Twitter, and we can't wait to see your results. Now, producer Carmen Baskoff wins hands down despite being matched with a painting of a baby's face. The app has not perfected the art of finding your exact doppelganger, but it hasn't stopped most of us from trying. That being said, is this app allowing people to connect to art and museums in a meaningful way? Joining us now by phone is Kim Sayet, director of the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. Kim, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Good morning. I understand your doppelganger is Eleanor Roosevelt. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I couldn't be more pleased. I think she's an amazing person, and I'm very excited to be paired with her. <laughs> For those listeners who may not have tried this app, uh, tell us how they're able uh, to match uh, people's faces, or try to anyway, uh, with uh, works around the world, including even sculpture. Well, you download the app, which is uh, very smart of Google, because I believe it The last time I read, something like 20 million people have done so. And then you take a selfie and it automatically sorts through all of the thousands of portraits that they have downloaded from museums around the world and makes a match. I was only a 44% with Eleanor Roosevelt, but I understand that that's pretty much the norm. I don't think I've seen anyone do much more than a 65%. Now, I mentioned that you're director of the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery. Any, uh, you or your friends, match with what is in your collection? I did not match with anyone in my collection, although it's rather interesting because the portrait of Eleanor is in the White House and the companion picture of her husband, Franklin Roosevelt, is in the Portrait Gallery. So, um, and it's by the same artist. So I know the work very, very well. Why do, you, why do you think people are so interested in this app? Look, I think it's just an extension of the whole selfie phenomenon. Now it's sort of who else um, do I get to know? And I think there is a sort of fascination people have for other people since time immemorial, of course. I mean, as um, I often mention, it, reputedly the worst form of punishment you can give to someone is to put them in solitary confinement. I mean, we really are drawn to people. We're social um, by our very nature, and we sort of walk through life uh, comparing ourselves to others and being compared. So in the museum world, uh, this is being seen as a good thing, that people are maybe sparking interest in the museum, but you also have some reservations about how this app might pair someone's face uh, with a painting found in a museum uh, in the world, but not a lot of information about that, that who was actually in that portrait. Yeah, my point was, I think, what's not to love, right? Mm-hmm. You can uh, find out uh, an amazing artist, an amazing uh, sitter, you know, a portrait of someone, and be introduced to major museums around the world. But it's really very superficial. And from just looking at the um, social media and what people are saying on Twitter and elsewhere, they're not going any deeper to discover who it is that they've been paired with. So, I mean, in my case, Eleanor Roosevelt, I think, doesn't need a lot of explanation. They know that she was the first lady and, and, and have a sense of who she was. But the second person I was paired with was a gentleman called Jacques Callot, who it turns out, because I looked him up, was um, prevalent in the 17th century and was a printmaker and, again, um, was much to be admired in his approach to life. But, again, that information was not provided in the app. 
And what's interesting, I know uh, among our colleagues here, you don't just try it once. You try it several times to see uh, the different matches. You might uh, change the lighting, change the way your face is, is uh, directed. And, and again, it turns out some of those matches continue to come back. Yes, I tried multiple times. Admittedly, Eleanor was the one that was the most consistent, but I did what I think most people did. You tried in different lighting. I have glasses. I wore them without glasses. Um, a lot of people said, oh, it's so depressing, <laughs> you know, the matches that were made with you. So um, it's not sort of something that you don't orchestrate. And, you know, one of the wonderful things, or not, I guess, depending on your perspective, is that every individual standing in front of a portrait brings their own baggage to that exchange. Um, I say that portraiture is as contemporary as the moment that you are looking at the other person, even if they'd been painted centuries earlier, because really it's about how you think about them in your contemporary situation and your life story. Um, and then also the reflection on where you are today in your own sort of um, experience of, of what you're doing at, at, the, at that time. On the phone with me is Kim Sayet, director of the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. We're talking about that app that's gone viral, this Google Arts and Culture app. Maybe you've tried it. If you have, tell us uh, what your match is, whether you uh, tweet at us at where we live or, or give us a call and maybe explain why you decided uh, to do this. I know there are people who are a little worried about uh, privacy concerns, about Google having uh, your face, but uh, really, uh, is there any privacy these days anymore? Um, I was curious, uh, Kim, when you were talking about this app particular doesn't give you a lot of information about the person sitting uh, in the portrait. That's something you find in museums, too. Not a lot of information, right? Besides who painted? Yeah, it's not entirely Google's fault, actually. I mean, I think we're somewhat um, unusual uh, in terms of museums because the portrait galleries, and of course, there's only one in the United States. It's ours in Washington that's part of the Smithsonian. There's a portrait gallery in London and Ireland and Scotland and a few other countries. We tend to do things a little differently. So when you go into the museum and you look at the information about the picture, we list the person in the picture or the sculpture first. And then we talk about who the artist was later. And we'll describe, we use normally around 140 words in English and now increasingly in Spanish to talk about who it is you're looking at. Most other museums, art museums, do it the other way around. They talk about the artist, they'll talk about, um, you know, the list who's in the picture, and sometimes and sometimes not, they'll tell you who the sitter was and about their life story. Often you'll get some sort of discussion about the art and the artist, but not always about the sitter. And that would be the one thing I would hope, now that we're taking this wonderful step, is that you know my colleague museums think about adding that information. Um, of course, I am surrounded by portraits. I, I have an Instagram where I just talk about portraits, and I am spending hours in museums looking up um, the who is in that picture because it's not provided on the walls. You know, I'm carrying around extra batteries all the time and my family leave me um, and run away because I spend too much time doing this. Um, and so I think people are fascinated to find out, well, who is this person I'm looking at and why did that artist, you know, create their portrait in the first place? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Something I've noticed, Kim, um, I'm Asian American, and when I put my selfie into this app, um, I was paired with a a woman who appeared to be Dutch. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Well, you may know that I'm actually Dutch, although I speak with an Australian accent. I'm a little bit of a hybrid myself. But, 
You know, one of the criticisms that is coming out is, in fact, the lack of diversity in some of the doppelgangers that people are, you know, getting paired with. And this is, in fact, again, not um, something that Google is entirely responsible for, or even the art museums. It's the history of portraiture, I'm afraid, which was a very elite art form. So um, as an Asian American, you would know that there was some form of the Asian Exclusion Act mm -hmm. operating in America until right until 1965, which meant that, you know, it was very, very hard for an Asian American to rise to some position of significance, um, you know, governors, mayors, let alone presidents or congressmen and congresswomen or, you know, um, because they just were not given those opportunities. And that is true certainly of women in the earlier part of our history and then going on to other minorities, uh, people who are disabled. So the portrait galleries um, around the world and museums around the world are really saying to themselves, okay, in the next generations when we look back, will we have added the portraits and truly represented in our case the motto on the Great Seal of the United States, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And are we affording the opportunities for everyone, regardless of their gender or their race or their different abilities, to in fact rise to the position where they will get their portrait made and put into a museum? Your collections at the Smithsonian National Portrait uh, Gallery again in D.C. feature a lot of white men. How are museums, how's the portrait gallery changing this? How are you commissioning works that, um, that show that diversity? Yes, we do it in a couple of ways. And just as a little bit of a background, the portrait gallery is very young. Um, interestingly, we were open to the public in 1968, which one could argue is one of the worst years we've ever had in this country. You know, we certainly had the assassinations of Martin Luther King, uh, Bobby Kennedy were in Vietnam. And it's at that moment that America is sort of asking itself, well, what do we think about our leadership? Who do we want to be um, applauding and recognizing and, and noting for their achievements to our culture? So when we started out, we did not have a, co a full collection of the presidents. We do now. Of course, up until recently, they've all been white men. And there's a large part of the real estate, for want of a better term, given over to a permanent ex um, ex exhibition of America's presidents. Um, but then what we are very much looking to say is, well, what temporary exhibitions can we bring in that really bring that diversity? And how can we think about what we call the presence of absence? So we have a, a dance company in residence um, that is very diverse and really talks about human emotion and achievement that is inspired by our, by our exhibitions. We have a performance series called Identify, which we ask and commission artists to think about race and gender. But more and more, we're um, commissioning exactly as you said. Um, we're identifying people and saying, we need to find somebody who can do a wonderful portrait of them so that future generations will have the benefit of seeing them in the collection. I understand the Obama presidential portrait will be unveiled soon. Um, will this uh, portrait, uh, I guess, challenge what the traditional presidential portrait has been? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's going to be very exciting. It happens on February the 12th. Um, the two artists chosen by the Obamas in consultation with our curatorial staff and the White House are Kehinde Wiley for the president and Amy Sherald for Michelle Obama. They're the first time that uh, African-American artists have been chosen to do the official pictures. 
And they bring both of them this really fresh and exciting perspective. Uh, both of them, certainly Kehinde is coming out of this tradition of hip-hop. They're very brightly uh, coloured traditionally. If you look at his other pictures, we have a fabulous canvas of LL Cool J in the gallery that he's done. And um, I'm, I'm super excited uh, for the world to see them. I think we'll all be um, just, it's a, a feel-good moment for everybody. Uh, we were talking again about uh, these art selfies uh, through this uh, Google app that's gone viral. It's called the Arts and Culture app. On the phone with me, Kim Sayet, director of the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. When we look at portraits, you know, there's a certain uh, style, a certain um, you know, talent to be able to, to paint uh, these kinds of, of portraits. But when you look at a selfie, uh, all you need is to have a smartphone. Is that changing up what we think of it as portraits, Kim? Yes and no. I do think that a lot of selfies, to be quite honest, are not particularly portraiture because they are good souvenirs. They're really interesting to your family and your friends. You share them on social media. But really, let's face it, for a lot of us, they're just boring and, okay, that's fine. Um, I don't know if I need to see you with your plate of, you know, whatever you've just ordered for dinner and call that a portrait. But there are certainly selfies that are portraits. And I think when people start getting into sort of playing around with lenses or um, looking at different perspectives, tilting their cameras, doing something interesting, really thinking about how they're depicting themselves and certainly others in the way that an artist does, I think that definitely is portraiture and it becomes interesting to the rest of us. Um, part of the issue of portraiture is does it transcend just the relationship, the very small one that you might have with yourself and your immediate circle? Is it something that is of interest to the rest of us? And does it tell us something new and um, interesting that um, we wouldn't have known before? So I think selfies, it's certainly bringing a lot of conversation about portraiture, but more to the point, I think, identity. Mm. And I think it is also thinking about, you know, what kind of relationships are we having with um, social media and, and selfies? Um, how in-depth are they? Uh, and I think that's actually part of the question I had with this whole Google app, which is, you know, it's kind of a fun game that you do. But really, it would be wonderful to take it to the next level so that you really do find out about that other person you've been paired with. And I ask that about other selfies, you know, is, is a selfie such that somebody who doesn't know you or the person that you've taken um, going to be someone you want to know more about and meet? I was thinking of uh, users of, of Instagram when they take that shot because of all the different filters. Sometimes uh, uh, the finished uh, the picture, you know, it is more artistic uh, depending on um, how people uh, change it up with filters and whatnot. We don't want to give too much free publicity to Google. They don't need it. But we know that the National Portrait Gallery, you're also launching an app. And, and how will you incorporate um, how people have been excited about this Google app into this app that you're launching? How will it be different? Well, we have also added our portraits to the app that they use. I think right now there's about 200 of our portraits that you can find out. And, of course, we have a website. We've just opened, uh, reopened the America's President's Gallery where there'll be a special website just on the President's. I mean, to be truthful, we're still trying to work it out. Um, in the America's President's Gallery, we actually have touch tables, and we deliberately did that so that people could stand around in a group and have a conversation and really engage both with each other and the art. 
one of the things I would really like to get away from is the people walking around museums and really kind of glued to their phones and not actually taking in the environment or being with others and present in the space. Having said that, I think it's tremendous if you take a selfie of yourself in the museum. Again, it's a souvenir that you've been there. It makes us very happy when we see uh, pictures uh, of others in our spaces. But I think it's you know really interesting too when I walk through the gallery to see how few people are using their phones. It, in an interesting way, is a time to disconnect, to be with somebody else, to learn something about someone else, and to um, you know walk away later on uh, having learned something, hopefully about yourself. Any concern, Kim, that with this technology at our fingertips that people, while they may be engaging with the app, they're not going to step out of their, their house and, and head to their local museum? You know, we had that worry uh, now a couple of decades ago when we started digitizing artworks and putting them out on the Internet. And there was a fear on the museums that we were kind of digitizing ourselves out of existence. The truth was exactly the opposite. We found that people love to see um, that work of art um, on the screen and say, well, I really want to go and see it in person. And I think that shows a level of sophistication of modern audiences that they realize that what they're seeing on the the screen is really just a, a reproduction, but there's nothing like the real thing. So I would say the digitization has been very good for museums. Um, people know uh, what's there. They can find out what they can come to see. But they do make the effort to come and have a look in person. I want to thank Kim Sayet, director of the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. Uh, you mentioned the Obama presidential portrait to be unveiled February 12th. Have you seen it? I have seen them, Yes. <laughs> And any anything that really jumped out at you, just it just really breaks the mold of, of what a presidential portrait um, is. Ah, you'll all have to be surprised. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. Um, I, I do think it's actually kind of fun that uh, February the 12th is, in fact, uh, President Abraham Lincoln's birthday. So uh, there's a there is a method to the timing of this as well. We think it's kind of fun. Well, we appreciate your perspective. Again, Kim Sayet, Director of the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. Kim, thanks again. Thank you. Be well. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, do you know your Hartford history? If not, a new series launching at Capitol Community College in the next few weeks will bring you up to speed. Historian William Hosley will explain after the break, and you can join the conversation, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, more people are using genetic tests like 23andMe to understand their family history, but a test can reveal disturbing surprises, not just about long-lost relatives, but also about your health. As scientists learn more about the role of genetics in diseases like Alzheimer's, what are the implications when people explore their own genome? We'll hear more about that on Monday, and we'll ask you to join the conversation, too. Now, in the studio with me now is historian Bill Hosley, a museum consultant. He specializes in local history. Bill, welcome back to the show. Hey, Lucy. Good to see you. You're uh, here to talk a little bit about this lecture series being launched, focused all everything about Hartford. Tell us about it. Well, Capital Community College in 2010 created this Hartford Studies Project, which is a unique thing in higher education in Connecticut, uh, where they use 
the content underfoot in this wonderful, rich, multidimensional city as a teaching tool. And uh, they've done a lot with students, and uh, they decided that they wanted to do some public outreach. So this lecture series, the idea was that we're sitting on a gold mine of local history here, and we could do more to get that share that with the public. So that's what we're going to do. What kind of history? So things that people really don't know anything about or maybe have learned back in school and have forgotten? Well, I think the topics we're exploring are actually things people don't know much about. I mean, you know, one of the arguments is that Connecticut, because it's been around, you know, been part of the American stories for 10,000 years, Native Americans settled here and then Europeans for almost 380 years that we, you know, there's, there's uh, sort of the, the American story plays out Right underfoot, almost the whole of it. So, you know, there are some epic nationally known stories, but there are also a lot of ones that that are just local and regional stories that are, I think, we think important for people to know. This is a series, as I mentioned. So uh, can you give us a little preview of what you'll be talking about or trying to focus on in each? Yeah, well, we're doing, it's four Thursdays, one each month in January, February, March, and April, last Thursday of each month. And we're kicking off next Thursday, January 25th at 7 p.m. with uh, an introduction to the theme of the whole whole um, program, which is it's titled Learn Local, Why Hartford History Matters Today. And we're going to look at, uh, you know, this this question, what 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 why does history matter? What what's special about it? What 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 do we need to know? And uh, and, you know, what is the place of history in in community development and education today. We're coming up on Black History Month. How will that be incorporated, Bill? Well, in February, that's our theme is Black History is American and Local History. And I, uh, uh, I'm i one of the presenters, and we have two other presenters, but I'm doing the one in February because uh, a few years ago, my wife and I had this absolutely amazing vacation. We visited, this is probably a Guinness Book of World Records, 47 museums in 10 days in the deep south and we went from atlanta to birmingham to memphis and and uh you know chattanooga and uh knoxville and it was there's uh, the south is where the story of civil rights and the you know the african-american narrative is being told with great sophistication i mean i think it, it might seem ironic that the old confederacy is on the cutting edge of reporting this news, but we visited these incredible museums, and then, of course, the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, which opened last year, is astonishing. So I'm gonna we're gonna I'm gonna talk about the role of museums in in bringing the uh, the narrative of African American culture forward, but also bring it right into our own community here in Connecticut. There are a number of museums that have done very interesting things to incorporate either the story of slavery or other aspects of African-American uh, history. Uh, and, of course, the Amistad Center at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, uh, but uh, also the potential here because there was a fellow named uh, Johnny Rogers who in the 60s and 70s amassed this incredible archive of African-American, Connecticut African-American history. And, uh, you know, we'd like to see something done with that.
Again, in the studio with me is historian Bill Hosley. There's a series being launched at Capital Community College uh, over the next few months all about Hartford history. Uh, we're hearing from Bill about some of the reasons uh, why this is important. You mentioned that in the South, they really know how to tell uh, the stories uh, uh, very important to our, our nation's history. You know, why, if Hartford is such a, a hotbed of history, Bill, why hasn't it become a go-to destination? What are what, we What are we missing? Well, I think, you know, Hartford as I've often said, is we've got a billion dollars invested in cultural apparatus in the city. By that, I mean, you know, everything from the Bushnell Memorial to the Wadsworth Athenaeum and the Connecticut Historical Society, Connecticut Landmarks. There's like a dozen house museums. And then the surrounding region has all this great stuff. And I think the, the, this, the, the, the turning a place into a destination, it doesn't happen by accident. It is a matter of will and a certain you know, kinds of uh, operations and maneuvers. And I think we just haven't put our hand to the grindstone on it, uh, you know, but we have a lot of untapped potential. And I, you know, I think Hartford would be, do, do a lot of good if, if there was uh, more visitation. It would help, uh, you know, the economy. It would also help sustain these treasures that we've got and it would generate buzz, which every place, you know, it's, they, they talk in the world of tu- tourism about a global beauty contest. And that, you know, all these places, just like us making our way to Birmingham a couple summers ago, you know, who visits Hartford? Well, a lot of people could. We have 20 million people within a day-tripping distance. Sounds like your friends are are hearing you on the radio, Bill. Tell them to cut it out. (laughs) Again, uh, this is an interesting series, and uh, you're going to focus on an African-American history, looking at Hartford as an origin point for philanthropy. Also, Hartford's art scene. Tell us about that. Well, you know, people think about New York and Paris, you know, the, the centers of the art world, but every community uh, from tribal communities and rural areas to big cities and small, every people make art, and some of the art is, is maybe is timeless and and uh, uh, enduring through the ages. But every place makes art, and as I always you know like to say, every every place obviously has a history, but every place also has an art history, and Hartford has an amazing art history. Uh, that you could say goes back to the 17th century, but Gary Noble, who will speak on this topic on April 26th, has done this amazing, obsessive, in-depth study of, you know, what was going on in the Hartford art scene during the late 19th and early 20th century, and it, it was just explosive and very, very interesting and had national influence, and this is a story that has never been told. Bill, you're a longtime uh, lover of history. You know when you hold these kinds of events, audience might skew a little older. How do you get more young people engaged? Well, it I, depends on the topics. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm being 60 myself, I can't say exactly what it's like being a young person, though I have two children uh, that are in their 20s. And I think that there, there is, in this moment in Hartford, a growing uh, interest in uh, the sort of civic spirit of a place and how you, uh, uh, you know, again, create a dynamic, vibrant community. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think young people are very interested in that. The people that, are, that, that, that like cycling and are moving to cities and that are promoting, you know, things like transit-oriented development and maybe moving to some of these apartments are thinking, okay, well, what are some of the elements 
of a strong, sustainable, vibrant community. And one of those, for sure, is uh, an awareness of the stories that connect us to one another. And I think that um, uh, that uh, this series should be of interest to people of all ages. I mean, you know, we're good. The old guys are, and men and women are going to be gone, and then it's we're going to have to pass the baton to uh, as we are happy to do to a next generation to keep the storytelling going. Uh, often in Connecticut, there's a focus on people leaving the state. We know that young professionals do move here who may not know about the history of Hartford. What are ways to get them uh, more engaged to even know about this history in their backyard? Well, invite them to come on down. This is a free public series. And, uh, you know, actually the first one is at 7 p.m. And just beforehand, there is a 5.30 p.m. reception introducing the new director of the Connecticut Humanities Council at the same place at Capital Community College, which is at, you know, 950 in the old G. Fox building, 950 Main Street. Uh, free parking for those that need it, 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 validated parking in the Morgan lot. But the point is uh, th- they could come at 5.30 and have a reception and meet the new head of Connecticut Humanities, stick around and learn about why Hartford history matters from uh, yours truly at 7 p.m. And there will be uh, some refreshments. And it's, you know, it's a social thing. Come, you know, that's Let's do it. (laughs) Well, I want to thank Bill Hosley again. Uh, He is a museum consultant and historian who specializes in local history. I think you've given us enough to tease us to come and and get some specifics on some of these talks. So thank you again, uh, Bill, for coming on. Uh, Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. If you want to learn more about the series, uh, we can tweet it out and also put it on our website website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks always for listening. Have a great weekend.